So Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. start by praying. Uh, gracious Father, uh, we do need your help this morning. Uh, we need your help to understand these things that you have written down for us. Uh, we need your help to take them to heart and to change. And we ask that you would be at work in us, uh, helping us to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. Uh, and giving us a heart that is compassionate and gracious like yours. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, today we do reach the end of our series in Jonah, and uh, I hope you're a little bit sad about that. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit sad. I've enjoyed preaching through uh, Jonah. Um, it's, it's a great book, isn't it? Uh, wonderful material for a kid's talk. Uh, but also, as we've dug deep into Jonah, I hope it's been challenging for you. Uh, it's been challenging as we've had our own sin held up in front of us. But also, I hope that it's been a great encouragement to you, a great encouragement as we've worked through the book and we've seen 
the big point that uh, we mentioned at the start when we uh, looked at chapter 1, the big point of Jonah is that God is the evangelist. Jonah is not a book about a big fish. Jonah is not even really a book about Jonah. It's about God the evangelist, a God who is compassionate and merciful, a God who relents from disaster. Uh, It's a strange book in a lot of ways, isn't it? Probably the strangest book, I think, in the Old Testament, in maybe the whole Bible. It's about a prophet who doesn't want to be a prophet, taking a message to a people who aren't God's people. We see him rebel and get thrown overboard and yet swallowed and saved by a, a great fish. And then the second time he gets the chance to go and preach to Nineveh, he obeys and he goes and he preaches a five-word sermon of judgment against Nineveh that actually turns out to be what is probably the most successful evangelistic message ever. 120,000 people repent. Billy Graham, eat your heart out, isn't it? Lots of strange stuff happens in the book of Jonah. And to add to that strangeness, then we get chapter 4. The final scene in Jonah's drama. So if if the book finished where we finished last week at the end of chapter 3, it would be a very different book, wouldn't it? The whole vibe would change. It would be Jonah preached, Nineveh repented, God showed mercy, everyone lived happily ever after the end. But this is not a happily ever after book. We get one more scene, and it's a scene that paints Jonah in a very ugly light. If this book is Jonah's memoirs, and he's sitting down writing this book years later, you could imagine him feeling very uncomfortable about putting this particular incident in. It's one of those incidents that kind of haunts you for the rest of your life. You know, those things that you remember that you said or did that just make your stomach churn and yet it's in here for a reason whether this is Jonah reflecting on his life many years later or whether it's someone else writing down what happened to Jonah uh, we don't know that but we do know that it's not here by accident God has put this book in the Bible for a reason it's here to make the people that Jonah represents the people of Israel reflect on themselves and their own attitudes and it's here to make us do that same thing as well and it's this scene this final scene of Jonah that makes it completely clear that Jonah just doesn't get God's grace he doesn't understand it and that's the question that this scene asks us to do we get God's grace do we understand the radical, undeserved nature of God's forgiveness of us. Because if we don't get God's grace, if we think that God's favour to us is something that we have earned, something that we deserve, rather than something that God has freely given to us, then just like Jonah, we won't delight in other people being saved. We won't share God's gracious and compassionate heart that delights in people repenting, that delights in God showing mercy to sinners. 
It's this final scene in the book of Jonah, in Jonah's response, that shows us that he just doesn't get it. Uh, As we've spent time with Jonah over these last few weeks, we've seen over and over again what God is like, haven't we? Uh, Jonah's told us himself at the climax of his song in chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. (coughs) And this final chapter starts with Jonah repeating the Old Testament's great statement of what God is like. He's a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. (coughs) And so it comes as no surprise to Jonah when, as the Ninevites repent, God holds back his judgment on them and he shows mercy to this repentant people. We know from reading the book of Jonah, don't we, that this whole mission that Jonah was sent on is about God who is sovereign, the God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, showing that he is also the God who is a saviour, a God whose great desire is not just for the people of Israel, but for all the nations of the earth to be saved. It shows us that God's heart isn't just for Israel, it is for all nations and peoples on the earth. But verse 1 shows us that Jonah is not on the same page as God. (coughs) Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Literally, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah and he burned with anger. The word evil gets used a lot in this book. Uh, Nineveh turns from their evil. God relents from doing evil to Nineveh. And God's mercy to Nineveh, he, according to Jonah, is evil. He sees God's mercy to these people as morally wrong, as evil. And it fills him with so much rage that he wants to die. That is dangerous territory to be in, isn't it? Calling God's grace evil. And yet before we jump in and condemn Jonah, which rightly we should do, we need to at least take a second to see just where he's coming from. Why is it evil to Jonah that God shows grace to Nineveh? You see, we can't forget how deeply depraved and evil the Ninevites were. When the Assyrian army would sweep through a country, they would leave a trail of destruction in their wake. Even this relief that's in the the British Museum today shows the evidence of their brutality. They would skin men alive and then impale them and behead them. The children, they would burn alive. They would beat and rape and then enslave the women. And this, in the next generation, is exactly what they're going to do to Israel, Jonah's people. What God is asking Jonah to do here is almost like asking Syrian Christian families to welcome in the members of ISIS who have killed and tortured their family members. It is not an easy thing that God is asking Jonah to accept, is it? 
But to call God's mercy evil, it's treading dangerous waters. And Jonah pours out his rage to God. All the the vileness and the poison in his his heart comes flowing out in verse 2. And Jonah exposes himself, doesn't he? See, up until now, we haven't really been clear about why Jonah ran away in chapter 1. Was it that he was afraid for, for his life? He knew the brutality of the Ninevites. Was it that he feared failing in his mission? We haven't quite been clear, but here, here it becomes crystal clear. It's that Jonah doesn't think Nineveh deserves God's mercy. But Jonah knows that God is going to show it. When he goes there, when he preaches his message, he knows that God will show mercy to Nineveh. And so he runs in the opposite direction. And here he he protests against God by quoting God's own name back to him. In verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Uh, The way he describes God here, it should sound familiar to you, if you know your Bible at all. Uh, When Jonah describes God using these particular characteristics, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, there is barely a page of the Old Testament that doesn't show God with one of these characteristics. Uh, But this phrase, this particular combination of those character traits is something that we first hear used to describe God in Exodus 34 when God reveals his glory to Moses. You see, in Exodus 34, God's up on Mount Sinai. He's speaking to God and he says to God, God, let me see your glory. And God says to Moses, well, you can't can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. If you see me kind of face to face, you will die. But I'll tell you what, I will let you see my back. And so he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and he places his hand over him and passes by. And as he passes by, Moses sees God's glory and God declares to Moses his name. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, by giving this description of himself to Moses, God is showing Moses his glory. This is what makes God glorious. This is how God wants to be known. The glory of God is that he is a God who's compassionate and loving, who's slow to anger and quick to forgive, and a God of perfect justice. This is God's glory. And Jonah... 
in quoting that name, he, he conveniently leaves out the bit about God's justice, doesn't he? He talks about God being merciful and gracious. He doesn't mention the fact about his justice. And either I think that's because he's, he's fine with God punishing people, particularly the people he thinks need to be punished. Or maybe he thinks that if God shows mercy to Nineveh, then really he isn't that, that into justice. He's not concerned with justice at all if he can forgive these people. And yet, do you see how Jonah's complaint to God is dripping with irony? To see that, we really need to know the context of Exodus 34, don't we? In Exodus 34, Moses is up the mountain talking to God, but he's been there before. In Exodus 31, Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the law and the Ten Commandments from God. The law is God's great blessing to Israel as his chosen people and his representatives in the world. And while Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law in chapter 31, in chapter 32, the Israelites are down at the bottom of the mountain, bowing down to a golden calf, indulging in blatant idolatry against the God who has just rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And so God's anger burns against Israel. And he says to Moses that he wants to destroy them. He's going to wipe them out and start again just with Moses. And yet Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. He steps in and he asks God, please show mercy on Israel. And God does. He shows mercy to them, not because Israel deserves it, but because Moses has found favour in his sight. Moses intercedes for the people. It's very Christ-like, isn't it? And it's in that context of Israel's sin and God's forgiveness that God reveals his glory. That he is gracious and compassionate and abounding in steadfast love. Israel knows God is gracious and compassionate because he has first been gracious and compassionate to them. Not because they deserve it, but because that is what God is like. And Jonah knows it personally as well, doesn't he? He knows the history of his people, but he's experienced God's grace himself. He's deliberately disobeyed God's command to go to Nineveh. Uh, He deserves death. He knows that as he asks the sailors in the ship to throw him overboard. But as he sinks down into the depths of the ocean and cries out to God, God showed him grace. He showed him mercy. He brings him back from death to life. And yet for Jonah, that grace, that mercy that God shows is evil when God shows it to anyone that he thinks doesn't deserve it. These are wonderful things about God that Jonah's complaining about, isn't it? He's gracious, extraordinarily generous to the undeserving. He gives us the righteousness of Christ and adopts us in his family. He's merciful and compassionate. He withholds the punishment that we deserve and takes it on himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, in our place. He's slow to end Again and again, we keep sinning and turning our backs on him and thumbing our noses at God. And he shows incredible 
infinite patience with us. He's abounding in steadfast love. It pours out of him like water over Niagara Falls. Once God has committed himself to us, as he has in Jesus, he will never give up on us. And he relents from disaster. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He is patient. He desires everyone to come to repentance. God told Moses that these were the character traits that made up his glory as he passed by Moses and and let Moses see just a glimpse of his back. But in Jesus, we see his face, don't we? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we know so much more than Moses and Israel and Jonah that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We see God's glory in its clearest, fullest form when we look into the face of the Lord Jesus. In what he's done for us on the cross, in his gracious and compassionate heart towards sinners like us. The Psalms say that God's steadfast love is better than life. And God shows his steadfast love to us clearly in his son, the Lord Jesus. And yet Jonah says he would rather die than live in a world where God is like that. Verse 3, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Uh, And God ignores his request like you ignore a toddler having a tantrum. And instead he asks him a question. Verse 4, do you do well to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Is anger the appropriate response to me showing mercy? What right do you have, Jonah, to be happy for me to bless you, but resentful if I bless someone you think doesn't deserve it? Who do you think you are, Jonah? Obviously, Jonah doesn't understand it, does he? He doesn't understand that God's grace isn't something that you deserve. It is something something freely given to the undeserving. Jonah thinks he deserves it and the Ninevites don't. And the question that this scene forces us to ask is whether we've understood God's grace properly. Or whether we're like Jonah and we think we're saved because we've earned it. Because if we think like that, if we think like Jonah, if we think that we've actually earned God's grace or we've received his kindness because we somehow deserve it, then we'll be unwilling to share it with anyone that we think doesn't deserve it. In essence, what we'll do is take on God's right to judge for ourselves. Now Jonah's problem here is that he thinks you've got to be an Israelite to receive God's grace. The Gentiles, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they are automatically out. His self-righteousness overflows in racism and, and xenophobia. 
So he'd clearly forgotten that Israel's role wasn't to sit in judgment over the other nations. God had saved them so that they would be a kingdom of priests, God's representatives, his agents of blessing to the other nations as he promised to Abraham. And our prejudices may not be the same as Jonah's, but that sinful tendency lurks in all of our hearts, doesn't it? You might have someone that deep down you think really doesn't deserve God's grace. For some of us, it is potentially a specific person. For others, it's just kind of that general attitude that bubbles away under the surface. Maybe if you're like Jonah and you come from a people who have been oppressed, then it's those people who have oppressed you. If someone has badly sinned against you and hurt you, then maybe it's that person. As Christians, I think we're we're tempted to sin and respond in anger and hatred to those people who vocally reject us and hate us. When we read about groups who violently kill and persecute Christians overseas or in our own country, groups who publicly portray Christians and our ethics as evil, Or maybe it's that vocal atheist in your workplace who's just going to ridicule Christians every chance that they get. At other times, we're just petty like Jonah and I, it's just the people that we don't like. But the Bible's antidote for us is remembering. We need to remember that God has saved us not because we deserve it, Now, the only thing that we deserve is hell and judgment, isn't it? We need to remember that God has saved us, not because we deserve it, but because of what He is like. A God who is gracious and compassionate. We need to remember that we're saved from sin and death to be part of God's great commission to make disciples of all nations. We remember by keeping our Bibles open and meditating on God's grace to us, interrupting the flow of our day by pausing to spend time hearing from God and His Word. We remember by regularly confessing our sins so that we're never tempted to think that we've earned God's grace. We remember by going out of our way to speak about God's grace to other people keeping it fresh in our minds. The critique of this book is that Jonah had forgotten. And Jonah stands for all Israel who had forgotten God's grace too. And so God prompts Jonah to remember with this question, do you do well to be angry? And yet Jonah responds to God by giving him the silent treatment. And so in verses 5 to 11, God sets up a living parable for Jonah. You see, after God relents from destroying the city, Jonah storms out of Nineveh to wait for the 40 days to pass. It seems like his hope is that the Ninevites would forget their repentance and turn back to their evil and God would rain down fire from heaven upon them. 
He wants to see Nineveh destroyed. So he storms out of the city. You can hear him muttering under his breath, shaking his little fist at God. And he sits down where he can see the whole city and builds himself a little shelter to sit in. And as he waits, God patiently gives him yet another opportunity to understand. And God shows Jonah more grace. And this plant is an object lesson. Uh, It's a living parable. It's designed to help Jonah see things from God's perspective. In verse 6, the the plant grows up quickly and it, it gives Jonah some shade to sit under. And Jonah is exceedingly happy about the plant. This is a chapter of extreme emotions for Jonah, isn't it? Uh, The extent of his happiness about the plan actually matches his anger about Nineveh. He's so happy about this plant. He's like a, a dog with two tails. He loves this plant. And yet the next morning when the sun comes up, Jonah's plant is gone. God had sent a worm to attack it, the plant with it, no more shade. And on top of that, God sends a scorching east wind and makes the sun beat down on Jonah so that he's faint. And again, he starts up, grumbling again, telling God a second time that he would rather die than put up with this. But God is using it to make a point to Jonah, and he explains it in verses 10 and 11. The Lord said... You pity the plant, for which you didn't labour, and nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The comparison that God makes shows just so clearly how selfish and petulant Jonah is being. God and Jonah are both filled with pity and concern, aren't they? Jonah pities the plant, but only because of what it provides for him. Really, Jonah pities himself, doesn't he? God pities 120,000 Ninevites who provide nothing for him. He pities the people who have rebelled against him and rejected him. Jonah, his concern is for his comfort. God's concern is for the salvation of a whole city of people. Jonah's love is selfish and focused in on himself. And God's love is generous and focused outwards on others. And God finishes his parable to Jonah, his parable of the plant, with a question that really only has one answer, doesn't it? Shouldn't I pity the people of Nineveh more than you pity that plant? And then the book finishes. And that's it. And no response from Jonah, no great epiphany when he comes to his senses and, of course, God, you're right. How selfish have I been? Let me... Go back into Nineveh and tell them more of your mercy. We're not told what happens. And it's not because someone lost the last page of the story. This is the author's deliberate strategy. It's meant to be like a mirror at the end of the book that we hold up against ourselves. 
See, of course God should be concerned with Nineveh and the 120,000 people who live there. But are we? That's the question that this sudden ending wants us to ask. Are we concerned like God is with the salvation of others? Or are we more like Jonah than we're comfortable to admit? Do we have that same compassion that God has for the lost? See, if Jonah's shown us anything about ourselves in these last four weeks, I think it's that the primary reason that we don't go out of our way to evangelise and to share the good news and, and to throw that life preserver to people who are tired of treading water is that we don't share God's compassion for the lost. Because we don't love them enough. It's not that we don't have enough training. It's not that our Bible knowledge is not good enough. It is so often that we really just don't love people enough to go out of our way and share the gospel. If we did, if we had God's heart for the lost, then no lack of training or lack of knowledge or feeling of Fear or awkwardness would stop us from sharing that wonderful news. We've seen the full face of God's compassion and mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus. It's a compassion and mercy that drives everything that God does to save us. God the Son volunteers to become human, to take on our flesh and to suffer in our place. God the Father volunteers for the grief of watching his son suffer and die under the wrath that we deserve. They are motivated by an extraordinary compassion and love for undeserving sinners like you and me. And as we look into Jesus' face through the Gospels, we get to see that compassion close up. In Matthew 9, Jesus has gut-wrenching compassion on the crowds that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, Jesus has compassion on the crowds that follow him. Matthew 15, he has compassion on the hungry people who have followed him into the wilderness. Jesus' heart overflows with compassion. And now, even as he sits at his Father's right hand in heaven, Jesus still looks on us with that same compassion. When he looks down and he sees people tearing each other down in jealousy and rivalry, he looks with compassion. When he sees people lashing out at each other with Violent words and violent actions, he looks with compassion. When he sees people living as slaves to their passions in drunkenness and sexual sin and idolatry, he has compassion. When he sees people living for themselves and not giving a second thought to the poor and the helpless, he has compassion. He doesn't despise them like we are tempted to do. He has compassion for people who don't know their right hand from their left. He has compassion on people who desperately need his mercy and his grace. 
Because the story of Jonah isn't about a rebellious prophet. It's not about a big fish. It's not about the people of Nineveh or a plant or a worm. It is about God who is the evangelist. He's an evangelist because of his gut-wrenching compassion for people who are lost. In Jonah, we see his gut-wrenching compassion for Nineveh and it's 120,000 people. In Jesus, we see God's gut-wrenching compassion for the whole world. God's the evangelist who told Jonah to go. And in Jesus, God tells us, go and make disciples of all nations. And the place for us to start is in this city, where there's 135,000 people, our neighbours and our friends and our workmates, who don't know their right hand from their left. Let's pray and ask God that we'd share his compassion for those people. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God, a merciful slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is a wonderful truth and you are worthy of all praise and glory and honour because of who you are and what you're like. Father, we are so thankful that we've seen the full face of your glory, your compassion and mercy and steadfast love in the face of the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that you showed your love for us by sending Jesus to die while we were still sinners and your enemies. And Father, we ask that you would help us to remember your grace. And by your spirit, Father, mould our hearts to be more and more like yours, showing compassion for the lost. Keep us free from pride and from self-righteousness and from arrogance. Help us remember that apart from your grace, we are lost too. Father, we're sorry for the times that we've failed at this and we've thought more highly of ourselves than we should. We thank you for the assurance of your forgiveness. So, Father, we pray that you would show mercy to our city. Give us and give other believers opportunities to share our faith in the Lord Jesus those people who are perishing around us. And please, Father, by your Holy Spirit, bring them into saving faith and into the fellowship that we share with you and that we share with one another. Father, we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus.